it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 212, and tonight we're going to answer some great listener questions we got recently. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and read the first question, and Andrew and I will do our usual give and take. So I have good morning, guys. Great podcast. I have a question about how much to invest in the stock market. Well, the more I learn about the stock market, the more confident I become in it. However, I still have a majority of my savings in a money market account, 80% in a savings account, 20% in the stock market. I am slowly starting to divert more of a percentage to stocks and bonds. However, I want to put more of my savings to work in the stock market and or investment vehicle, which has a yield of at least 3%, as currently most of my savings is sitting in a savings account that is losing value in real terms. I am not just confident enough to dump most of my savings in the stock market. If you were to advise someone how to invest 80% of your savings, where would you recommend putting that cash to work in the market and or bond market if you are willing to incur a low amount of risk with a yield between 3 to 5%? Thanks in advance, Jay. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Jay's great question? A lot to unpack. So, I guess, first off, I'll start by saying I invest 100% of my savings into stocks, and that's because I have a very long time horizon. I think anybody with a time horizon longer than 20 years or so should, I, I don't see why anybody shouldn't do that. That's what I do. And it's simply because over the long term, the stocks do well and they always recover. And it's because businesses do well. That said, so he's talking about investing 80% and wanting a yield of 3%. Now that's where the the answer can become tricky because interest rates change. And so If we were to rewind, let's say like 10, 15 years ago, you could probably get 3% by putting money into a savings account. You know, rewind another 25 years, maybe you could have gotten 4 or 5%. You fast forward to today, you're lucky to get 1%. And you're probably having to switch to a a no name broker to do that. So, you know, he mentions how he's losing money in real terms. And so what that means for for people who are not familiar, you know, you have inflation and I think a lot of us are familiar with that, but basically inflation makes uh, your purchasing power go lower. And so when they talk about real terms, they're talking about inflation adjusted terms. And so even if you're making if you're making 1% but inflation's 3%, then you're losing on real terms. And so that's kind of what he means by that. And so the answer between, you know, how are you going to find a yield of between three to five percent, even if this question was asked like three years ago, you could probably find some good corporate bonds trading in that yield range. And those would have been very safe and very low risk. Today, though, because interest rates are so low, all of the yields that go along with interest rates, it's all pegged together. And so to get a guaranteed yield between three to five percent, I don't think that's the right mindset to have. Wanting to have a guaranteed three to five percent isn't 
really the best thing to necessarily go for. I think it's it's really going to depend on you know what's the time horizon. So like I said, for me, my time horizon is 20 plus years. I go into the stock market, I'm looking for 10% return, give or take, per year. A yield of 3 to 5%, if you were to do that in like a dividend stock, you might end up in a stock that's kind of more risky, and that's why it has that higher yield. And you could even argue with that with bonds today too. So I would say that at today's interest rates, you probably won't get a low risk for 3 to 5%. You'll probably take on some medium risk. And so the question needs to become, well, what's the time horizon? Because is it worth my time horizon? If it's like 10 years away, then maybe it's worth taking an extra risk and trying to chase that 3 to 5%. But you know, if your time horizon is like five years away and, and you need this money to retire, I don't see any reason to get a higher risk than something very low risk. In that case, I don't think 3 to 5% is realistic. And that's why I would say shooting for that particular yield percentage is not a good strategy because it all depends on timeline and hopefully that's clear. It is. I think it's I think it's very clear. And I think I echo a lot of what you're saying. I think those are great ways to think about it. Let's look at a couple other things to kind of put it in perspective to kind of I guess frame what Andrew was talking about. The 30 year yield on a treasury bond right now, which is arguably one of the safer investments you could do out there is hovering around 2%. I believe it's between 2.02% and 1.98% over the last few days. So uh, the only reason I know that is because I've been doing some DCFs lately. So, and that's what I use for my terminal rate. And those are not as high as what you're looking for, but they're certainly more than you're getting in your savings account. So there's, that is a reference point as something that could possibly give you a better return that is certainly a safe investment. But to realize that, you're going to have to put that money away for 30 years. And is that really what you want to do? So I guess there's that question. So then there's another idea to think about is if you wanted to invest in bonds, in corporate bonds, something that Andrew mentioned, there is the opportunity to invest in the only two companies that offer triple A rated bonds, which are the safest bonds that you could possibly buy on a corporate level, are Microsoft and the Johnson and Johnson. And while Andrew was talking about this, I looked up Microsoft's latest bond yield for the bond, the latest bond issuing they did when 2017 is three point three percent, and that's for a thirty year bond. So it's better than the the Treasury yield. But you're still tying up your money for 30 years to get that 3%, 3.3%. So again, you know, certainly safer than, than investing in, you pick any stock. I don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, you pick something a little more exotic. Visa. Yeah. There you go. Visa. Uh, you pick, well, maybe not Visa, but, <laughs> uh, but you, you, you kind of get what I'm saying. So the, Picking a stock is going to have a little more risk, but it's certainly going to have way more yield than something like the Microsoft bond would have. So then, then I thought about, okay, what about something like Johnson and Johnson, which has a AAA rated bond, but it also pays a dividend. It's a dividend aristocrat. It's been paying a dividend for, you know, 50 some years and it's been paying a growing dividend for 50 some years. So you, you could argue that's a, that's a pretty safe company to invest in. They pay a dividend right now with a yield of about 2.5%, give or take. And so that's less than what Jay is looking for. But you would have the capital appreciation of the share return earning, hopefully, better than 2.5% over a period of time. So that could be a possibility. But investing in stocks is, is no guarantee. So there are no easy answers to this question. And like Andrew said, there's a lot to unpack here, but I think really you need to think about several things and it kind of, I guess to just kind of keep beating the table that Andrew was, was, was talking about. You have to think about your time horizon. That really has to be the first thing you have to consider because that really goes into forming the decision that you're going to make about what kinds of things you want to invest in. The longer time horizon you have, the more ability you have to 
overcome any drawdowns that may happen because like it or not, the, believe it or not, for those of you younger that are listening to our show, the stock market does not always go up to the right. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are times when it goes down or things don't, or they just kind of <laughs> fluctuate around kind of for a while. But there's also long periods of time where it goes up and does great like it is right now. And if you invest in something and you have a 40 year time horizon, you have time to recover if things go poorly with, if you buy Johnson and Johnson today and four years from now, the stock drops 20%. You have another 36 years for it to recover and it will. And so that is what you have the advantage of. Now, if your time horizon is five years, then the options become a lot more complicated because now you have to think about how much risk am I willing to take for that yield that Jay is asking for? And if I have a five-year time horizon and I want that kind of yield, frankly, to, you're going to have to step into more risk to get that. And so that's why it makes it hard to answer this question because we don't really know what the time horizon is. And that really has a huge bearing on what kind of decision you make, whether you invest in things like bonds or keep it in a money market account or whether you want to go with corporate bonds or treasury bonds. There's lots of different, there, there, there are some advantages to buying some of those things because they'll give you close to some of those yields you're looking for, but you're also sacrificing some of the gains that you could get by buying Microsoft or Johnson and Johnson or Apple or any of those other choices that are arguably pretty safe investments, but they're still going to have volatility to them. And so those are things you just, you just have to consider when you're doing all these things. And it really comes down to what your time horizon is and how much risk you can stand and how much risk you can, you can stomach. And I think one of the things that maybe we don't talk enough about is kind of the idea of risk. And when you think about risk, you have to think about how much are, how, how much could you be willing to risk losing? And it's not about the stock price going down because like Andrew was saying, if you've got a 40 year time horizon and, and Microsoft loses value in the next couple of years, you have 38 years for that to recover and it will. And even if the market goes sideways for a few years, it's still going to go. It's still, you're still going to do well because the company is a great company and it's going to continue to do well at what it does. But if you're buying something that's a lot riskier or it's in a, an industry or a sector that is very speculative at best, there's a chance the company could go bankrupt and then you lose all your money. And so, but those, that's, that's rare. But it's something you have to consider. And so that's really what you have to balance is how much can I handle a drawdown or a, a loss in price of the stock for a period of time? Or how much am I willing to gamble on whether the company will go bankrupt or not? And that's, I guess, something I would consider as well. That's a great way to outlay it. We talk about a lot about you know time horizons and how that ties into risk. And you might wonder why why do I come up with this random number, 20-year time horizon? Sure. If you look back at the data, I mean, we have data up on the stock market all the way back to like the 1800s, basically. I mean, maybe 19, 1910s, but the stock market's been around since the 1800s. So there are cycles in the stock market, just like the seasons. The stock market kind of can look like a roller coaster in the short term, but it's like a roller coaster that's pointed to the moon eventually if you if you look long enough. But in between that, that path to the moon, there's this roller coaster up and down. And so we can observe what's happened over decades and decades and decades. And so if you look back, you look at any five-year period, when you get in and when you get out, it's pretty random. And so you, even a 10-year period, there are times where you would buy and 10 years later, you could be even or you could be down. But once you get to 15 years and once you get to 20 years, Go ahead and look look back at the history of the stock market and crunch some of those numbers. You'll see that you'll make money anyway, regardless of where you buy in, if you have that 15 to 20 plus time horizon. And so I think when you talk about, you know, Jay talks about what's the percentage of, of money and he's starting to slowly put more into the stock market. I think it's a great idea to like increase that percentage over time. And if you have money that you think you'll need, that you can't just leave in the stock market to let it grow and compound and let it be volatile and move up and down. If you have some money like that, well, then you can just keep that kind of safer in something really low risk or even in cash. And the rest of it, 
to to grow and and to do what it does well in the stock market. That's where all these ideas come from. It's not like these magical numbers pulled out of the air. It's it's based on history and if you take the time to learn about how the market works, you can increase your chances of getting better returns and at lower risks. But I think you have to switch away from the mindset to say I'm going to earn this much and you really have to look what's my reality? what's reasonable, and what are the investment options out there. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Well said. Very well said. All right. So hopefully, Jay, that helps you. So, all right, we're going to move on to the next question. So we have, hey, Andrew, Dave, maybe you can answer my question on a future video. I remember an episode several months ago, Dave mentioned an investing strategy where you invest a larger percentage in an index fund, S&P, and buy a smaller percentage in individual stocks. I'm assuming if we did this strategy, we would want to avoid investing in some of the top holdings of the index. Would you altogether avoid individual stocks that are also a part of that index or only the companies in the top holdings? Thanks. Uh, this is from Moses. So thank you. Really appreciate the time you guys put into this. So well, you pre- we appreciate you writing this in, Moses. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Moses' question? I think he was asking you, so I'd like to hear <laughs> <one>. Okay. <laughs> put it back on me. All right. So here's, I guess, my thought. Yes, I, I would definitely not... If you're buying the index, it kind of, I, to me, it's pointless to buy the individual stocks that are already the main holdings of the index fund. The whole idea behind buying the index fund is you're looking to match the performance that those are getting. And if you're looking to outperform, then you'd want to buy Google instead of buying the index fund. If you're wanting to, you know, put your, your belief in a company like Google, then buying the index fund that also has a portion of its earnings or return based on other companies kind of dilutes whatever you're going to gain from investing in Google to begin with. And so I guess my idea was to use the index funds or an ETF as your base 
and this is what I'm going to put the majority of my money in. So let's just put some numbers to that. So let's say that I wanted to build a portfolio and I chose two different indexes, one that matched the S&P 500 and one that matched the NASDAQ. And I put 80% of my money in those two funds. And maybe I split it equally, 40% in each. The other 20% of money I could use to invest in other things that land outside of those two funds. And it doesn't mean that you have to, I would focus more on thinking about what are the top 10 individual companies that are in those index funds and avoid investing in those separately because those are the ones that are really going to drive the returns for the index funds. And so if you're looking at a company, let's say, I don't know, I'll just pick something AMD or something like that at one of the, one of the semiconductor companies. If you're looking at investing in something like that and that is only making up 0.025% of the index fund, by all means, go for it. And if that's something that you really you know, feel that itch and that desire to invest in, by all means, do it. But you're still getting all the great returns that you would get from investing in the NASDAQ fund and the S&P fund. So I guess that's kind of my idea. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that sounds reasonable. I mean, it's not something I'd do since I'm a 100% stocks, individual stocks guy, but yeah, it sounds reasonable and it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've done a little bit of research on ETFs recently because we've had so many pe- people asking us questions about them. And, and I guess I feel like that if you are one of those people that A, doesn't have the time or because you have kids, family, you know, all the things that life throws at us, or you just don't you just frankly don't have the desire or the, or the urge to learn about companies like Andrew and I do, then going through the stress and strain of trying to figure out whether you want to buy Google versus Microsoft versus Facebook, you're just defeating the whole purpose of what Andrew and I are really trying to teach you. Really, the most important thing is that you invest for your future. And if, if buying an index fund or an ETF is something that you can do on a regular basis consistently over the next however many years, you're going you're gonna to be way better off than if you didn't do it at all. And I would rather have you do that than go the route of deciding that you want to buy the latest, I don't know, you know, train stock that maybe doesn't do as well as you hoped it would or some emerging market f- stock that is in some crazy i don't want to pick on the sector because i'll get i'll get burned but um get burned okay so you pick some crazy biofarm thing that is trying to create the next cure for i don't know cancer or something like that which is certainly a worthy cause but those kinds of companies can be risky i don't know that much about pharma so if i'm if I'm speaking out of turn, by all means, you know, go ahead and blast me. But I guess my point being is that if you, if that is something that really falls under your, your, your wheelhouse and you really want to learn about that stuff, go for it. But if you don't and you, you know that you should invest and you're listening to the show and you're like, you know, I really need to start investing because it's a great thing to do for my future and my family's future. And, but I don't have the time and the idea of, learning about numbers and reading 10 Ks and learning about the ins and outs of a company and the stock market, just make your head spin, buy an index fund, buy an ETF, set it and forget it, invest in it every month, just like you would with your 401k and be done with it. You're going to live a happy life and you're going to have great returns and there's nothing wrong with that. For some reason, the stock market game has gotten this kind of macho, you know, adrenaline rush, you got to do it this way kind of thing. It doesn't have to be that way. There are many different ways to slice up the the investing game. The, the bigger idea is to find out what works for you and stick with it and do it on a regular, consistent basis, because that's how you're going to get, you know, create wealth for yourself and your, for your family. So I guess that's my thought. Any comments? I don't know. I mean, uh, I've been wanting to rant against index funds for a while, so this could be a good give and take. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) I'll I'll take the other side just in the sense that people say you can set it and forget it. And I think there's a lot of danger in that because you, you do set it and forget it, but you need to 
understand how the market works before you do that. And so where I see a lot of trouble with that kind of mentality is if you are doing that and then you forget about your portfolio and you don't look at it until we get like what we got in 2020. Because that's the thing about the stock market is people will never talk about it until the time that it's crashing. And then everybody's going to talk about it. And then everybody's going to freak out. And then everybody's going to figure, oh man, this is the time I should really know what's going on in my portfolio. And if you do that and you you see red and you see losses, you end up doing what all the other investors do. And I see, so I think there's, there's a fine balance that needs to be done. And, and you really need to, you know, I, Maybe maybe I'm hanging out in like the wrong like the different spaces and you are. I don't see a lot of like machismo like uh, I'm gonna attack the stock market and I'm gonna be the best investor you've ever seen. I think there's like a over religious blinding of indexing and it kind of drives me nuts a little bit because I think it's irresponsible. I think I think people do need to take responsibility for their money and and figure out that. I'm going to learn this investing thing. I'm going to learn what it means. I mean, that doesn't mean I need to be the next Warren Buffett, but if I need to understand what I own, why I own them, and I think that that, that do, going through that process can be very helpful for people. Yeah, th- those are good points. And I will I will give you the, it would be irresponsible to not pay attention to what's going on. I'll definitely, I'll definitely agree with you on that. I guess my counter argument to your argument would be that the idea behind investing on a regular basis on a monthly basis and buying a S and P 500 fund, for example, as you do it through the ups and downs of the stock market, you're going to get the same benefit that you would if you were investing in your 401k. So it's kind of the, is it's kind of the same idea. At least that's the way I think about it. Is it? It's not to be, and maybe I wasn't presenting my idea in the best light. No, I wasn't attacking your idea. I was just no, no, no. What bothers me about the whole index thing in general. No, and I, I, I get, I get that idea. I think the, 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 the responsible way, and I would agree with what you were saying. The responsible way is to pay attention to what is going on with the market. But I think the bigger thing, and this is, I think what I probably need to stress a little bit more about this idea is that you need to be consistent and you need to keep investing through the ups and downs of what's going on in the market. Because the thing that Andrew uh, highlighted, which is a very key point to think about is that people get emotional about investing in the stock market. And when things go well, everybody wants to put their money in. Everybody's talking about Bitcoin or whatever great new thing, what shiny object is, and everybody wants to take advantage of it. But like Andrew said, when things are going poorly, then everybody's talking about it as well. And people get afraid and start taking their money out. And that's exactly Exactly the wrong time to take your money out. The right time to be putting money in is when prices when prices are going down. Uh, Warren Buffett says this all the time. the The time to be greedy is when everybody else is being fearful, and that's when you can really get the best gains that you can possibly get. Over the last year and a half, two years for me, the best returns I've gotten were things I bought during COVID when everything fell out, when the bottom fell out. And it wasn't because I bought the greatest companies ever. I didn't. But what I did, I got the all these great companies on sale. And that's what happens when the stock market goes down. And so when you're buying an S&P 500 ETF or an index, and the price of that goes from, I'll just use easy numbers, from 100 to 50, and you keep buying it from 100 to 50, the next time you buy it, it's cheaper now. And when it goes back up to a hundred, now you've made all that gain and you've, and you've changed your, the price of what it, what it costs you has dropped. And so instead of it, instead of it being a hundred dollars a share, now it's actually $75 a share. And when the, when the price goes up to 125, now you've made all that extra gain. And so that's really kind of where the magic of investing in the stock market really comes into play, whether it's buying individual stocks or whether it's buying indexes or ETFs. And so I would definitely agree with what Andrew was saying is that there's a glamification of, of these kinds of funds and there's, there's some dangers to them for sure, but you have to be, 
somewhat cognizant of what's going on. It doesn't mean that you have to know the ins and outs of every single company that's in these indexes or in the ETFs, but you at least have to be cognizant aware of what's going on in the market and understand what's going on. But the biggest issue is you have to be consistent. Do not sell when everything is falling apart because that's when you can make the most money. If you still have, if, if, if your life is not affected and the stock market is going down and you can still afford to put your $150 a month in, do it. That's when you're going to make more money. And in two years, when everything goes back to, to being great again, you're going to be like, <laughs> you're going to be doing a happy dance because your returns are even that much better. And that's really when you can really succeed in the market. It's not actually when it's going up the most. It's actually when things are going poorly is when you can really jump in and take a advantage of those situations. So I guess those are, I guess that's my counter argument, if you will. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> All right. I'm, so yeah, I'm glad you covered that. I think it's 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 key, like you said, to have that in your mind mm-hmm. that it's very counterintuitive. And we want to all pat ourselves on the back when stocks go up and we want to put more money when stocks are up. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the opposite. Yeah. And if you sell because you're not aware that that's the reality of the stock market, you're not going to get good results. Right. Yeah, the the key to, the key to success is to buy low and sell high. You have to always keep that in mind. Buy low and sell high. Buy cheaper, sell it higher. Yeah, one of the podcasts, the first park podcast I started, Miranda used to say this all the time. She used to say, "Nobody's going to care about your money more than you do." So that's why you have to empower yourself, and that's why if you're listening to the show, you know that's a great thing because nobody will care more than you do, and it's something that you're going to have with you for the rest of your life. Yep, exactly. No, hundred percent agree. All right. So we've beaten that horse to death. Let's move on to the next question. So I have uh, dear Dave and Andrew first, thank you all for all your work on the podcast the newsletter and monthly research letter. Your podcast served as a great stepping stone into this world. While well, the research letter enabled me to finally start investing, given my limited time slash confidence to actually do the research. Uh, so I have three or two questions here. So given that I'm a strong believer in dividends, I am interested in investing sums into a couple of kings slash aristocrats. How would you go about this? Do you research these companies for these newsletters or do you focus on companies you think would become kings or uh, aristocrats? I am a conservative investor with a 90 slash 10. I just turned 27. So the next questions will be about bond slash safer investing options. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on the whole dividend aristocrat idea? So just a preface, dividend aristocrat is a company that's been paying a dividend that has increased that dividend for 25 consecutive years. A dividend keen, same story, except they've been doing it for 50 years. So there are, Websites out there you can go to and see lists of dividend aristocrats, dividend keens. They'll update them every month, day, week, however long they do. Um, so that shouldn't be too difficult. You can just Google dividend keens or dividend aristocrats. Give you a list of ideas. The question behind whether do do I research these companies? Of course I do. Do I focus on them? Yes and no. And so you know. It's a great thing to see a company with a track record of growing dividends. Generally, that's a good sign. But you know, it needs to be done in a way where this company grew, they were profitable, they grew profits, they grew dividends, and they did all of that together. You don't want a company in a situation where they're, as an example, getting a bunch of debt in order to pay a dividend. Or you know, their business is going down, but their dividends that they're paying are going up. That's not sustainable. At some point, it's going to break. And so, you know, if you look at a company, if you've been a loyal customer to Amazon for five years, does that guarantee that you'll give them your business next year? I mean, maybe it could influence that a little bit, but if they start dropping the ball and giving you packages in two weeks instead of two days, then maybe you switch to a different retailer. And so in the same token, businesses can have great times where they execute really well, but they need to continue executing and so that's why that's where kind of being cognizant of of what's going on with these companies comes into play. So it's it's a great place to look for ideas, but I'm not. I don't think anybody should just focus solely on them because they can give you great returns, but it's not always those group of stocks that do the best. Even though some 
some articles online will try to claim that it's not going to be true all of the time. Yeah. The, one of the, I guess, difficulties or struggles with investing in companies like the dividend aristocrats or the Kings is you have to look at the life cycles of businesses and generally companies that are paying dividends that are in that nature of 25 to 50 years are more on the mature side of their growth, if you will. And the thing you have to kind of think about is uh, I'll just kind of pick on a couple companies here. So Coca-Cola and Johnson and Johnson, who are probably the two are the more famous uh, dividend aristocrats, their returns over the last five, 10 years have been kind of eh. And so, and especially if you compare that to the returns that the S&P 500 has gotten over that same period. Now, yes, they're conservative companies. Yes, they are paying a great dividend and it continues to grow. But the other part of the business is investing into business, not just the dividend. And so the thing you have to think about with a company like Coca-Cola is as much as I love the product and I do, I drink a lot of it every day. <laughs> and so I, I may not own the company, but I am certainly contributing to their bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the issue though is, is that if I invest in Coca-Cola, that's money that I'm taking away from investing in something else that could earn me a better return, albeit maybe at a, at a lesser dividend yield, but it could be I could get a, a, a comparable dividend yield. Let's say just for numbers, let's say Coke is paying a, a 3% dividend yield. I don't know if this is actual fact. I'm just throwing out examples here. So let's say the Coke is paying 3% and, but the overall return of the company is three and a half percent. So now you're looking at around a six and a half to seven percent return total for investing in Coca-Cola. Let's say that I find a company that's only paying me a two percent dividend return, but the stock is actually returning eight percent. So now I'm looking at a 10% return for that company versus the six or seven that I could get with Coca-Cola. Well, I don't know about you, but I would rather choose the latter over Coca-Cola. And it doesn't mean that I think Coke is a bad company or a bad investment. I'm just looking for if I want a better return, I want to go for the company that's going to, in theory, give me a better return. And so when you look at the companies that comprise all of the dividend aristocrats and kings, most of it, well, there are companies that have at least have been around for 25 years because they just have to by the nature of the name. And then some of them have been around for 50 plus years. None of them are going to grow like Microsoft is now or like Amazon or Google or even picking companies outside of that whole realm, even Berkshire Hathaway. They're not going to grow like that company is just because of the nature of what they do and how they do it. And it's just, it's just an economic fact. And so you have to think about what do I want to get from my investments? And maybe for a little bit more risk, you could buy something like a Visa or a MasterCard, just as an example, and you could get a better return than you could buy from getting Coca-Cola, even though Coke gives you a better dividend. So those are just things to think about, I guess. I've, I'm going to fight back again and okay. don't take this the wrong way. Practice your thick skin it has nothing to do with anything you're saying. This is just stuff that's been circling around in my head a lot lately. So the the thing with the life cycle, I think this is important to understand because when you're jumping into the stock market, you need to understand uh, what there, there are positives and negatives to investing in the life cycle. So you mentioned the life cycle. I think it's a, it's a, a really important thing for new investors to kind of understand. You basically have the birth stage, the the explosive growth, and then the maturation. And so when you're when you're going in the explosive growth stage, the reason why a company can get explosive growth is because it's it's either a brand new market, it's a brand new product, brand new service, and so it's it, the the number of people who are using it are just exploding leaps and bounds or it's coming in completely and just destroying another business so like netflix would be a perfect example they destroyed blockbuster and so they were able to go explosive growth because they had a really small company and then they grew it as they took everything blockbuster had now you look at netflix and they might start to get towards more of that maturation where they can't, they're not going to explode like they used to because there's no more Blockbuster to take from. Blockbuster's dead. And so really what's going to limit their growth is going to be the number of people that are in the world and how much they're willing to pay for Netflix. 
And so what's nice about being in the maturation phase and investing in companies like that is that as long as they can keep those prices going, they could be a cash cow for decades. And Coke is a good idea, a good example of a company who did that uh, 20, 30 years ago, and they were able to do it for many decades. And now it's kind of starting to die off in a way. You can just look at their revenue numbers and you can see it as it's going down. That's a good sign of a company that's really gone from maturation into kind of decay. And so when you look at companies, you, you do have companies that are kind of maybe decaying when you look at the revenue like Coca-Cola or Johnson Johnson. You also have another company like Target, which I'll say I've, I've been a shareholder of for a while. I recommended it for the e-leather. Over the last 40 years, they've if you've invested stock, if you bought a share of Target stock 40 years ago, you would have had a 24% annual return if you reinvested your dividends. And so this is a stock that if you look at it on the surface, they look like they're matured. Um, they have 1900 stores and they're not really looking to grow past that. Most of the US already has a target. But if they can continue to serve the kind of customer that they have and give them better products at higher prices every single year, then that allows them to be in that sweet spot of maturation and it allows for nice dividends, nice dividend growth, and nice earnings growth. You kind of get everything that Dave was saying with, you might get a, a lower yield because a, co- a, a company like that might be a little bit more expensive, but uh, you get the growth that comes with that. When you add that to the yield, you get a much better return. And so what I like about picking stocks that are in that maturation phase instead of in that explosive growth phase is that they already have their dominance. So all they have to do is continue to execute. They don't have to spend a bunch of money to try all these new things and try to make a name for themselves. They've made the name for themselves. All they got to do is continue milking that cash cow and basically just not have somebody to come in and screw it up. Now, sometimes another business can come in and try to screw it up. That's where the, the moat comes in. We've talked about economic moats before, and you can go back in the archives and listen to that. But really, it's it's their game to lose at that point. And so that's where a dividend keen or dividend risk cat can be a great company because those if, if it's a company that's in that sweet spot of maturation and they're just they're living the good life in there, that can be a great investment for a very long time. I stand corrected. That, <laughs> yeah, he's Visa being the perfect example of that, by the way. Yeah, listen, listen to ignore everything I said and listen to what Andrew was saying because if if you think about what he was saying and you look a little deeper into what what actually consists of the list, like I was doing while he was talking, and yeah, I was wrong. So uh, listen to what Andrew was saying because that is that is absolutely correct. I think you have to think about you have to take each company piece by piece and think about it in in that light i was lumping coca-cola slash johnson and johnson into a different category but then you have companies like andrew was talking about target and you have other companies like walmart and you have visa you have sb uh p global uh there were there were a list of other ones i was just looking at here you know on the list that are they're they're great companies and they're growing adp uh, Archer Daniels, VF Corp, Pepsi, Kimberly Clark, uh, Federal Realty. I mean, there's lots of great companies in there. So the the bigger the bigger issue, not bigger issue. I guess you have to take it company by company and find a company that has the value and has the growth that you want, not only from the dividends but also from the share appreciation for, that the company can earn. So definitely listen to what Andrew was telling you. That's that's the right advice. the the second part of her question or his question i am currently interested in investing 10 percent of my yearly roth in bonds i've also listened to your episode regarding bonds but you did not discuss bond etfs in it what do you think about those i was also wondering about the timing of this purchase given the current high inflation rates and possible increase of interest rates in early 2022 how would these factor into my decision whether invest in bonds or not? I'm considering putting the 10% into an ETF, such as VTI, such as VTV, and forgetting about bonds for now due to their minimal return. This was from 
Ali? Yeah, so it's a great question. So if I've not talked about bond ETFs in the past, I I am sorry. So bond ETFs are are really no different than stock ETFs. They you have different flavors that you can choose to match whatever it is that you're looking for. So in other words, you can find bond ETFs that will match the entire bond market. And just an FYI, the bond market is almost double the size that of the equity or stock market in the world. So bond market is huge. So you have a choice of buying a wide range of different of different kinds of ETFs if you want to use that for bonds. So like I said, you could buy the total bond market. You could buy the bond market that just focuses on corporate bonds, which corporate bonds are bonds that the individual companies would sell. So I mentioned earlier, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, those particular companies issue bonds to help raise money to do different things for the company, whether it's start different projects, whether it's to pay off other debt or various other things. So when a company issues a bond, that's what they're doing. And so you have corporate bonds and then you also have treasury bonds. So those are the bonds that the government pays out to raise money to pay for things just like companies do. So you have treasury bonds that you can buy and you have different durations. And that means how long the bonds are good for until they mature and you get all your money back. So for those of you who are not familiar with with what a bond is, a bond basically is a loan that you give somebody in return for them giving you interest payments or dividends for giving you that money. And then when the bond matures or the loan matures, they give you all your capital back Plus, you've earned all those dividends throughout the time that you loan them the money. So that's, in essence, what a bond is. And bond ETFs take all those different kinds of collections of bonds and put them together in a fund that you can buy. And for the average lay person, if you want to invest in bonds, that's probably going to be the easiest way for us to do it. Because unfortunately, if you wanted to buy a a bond for Microsoft, they are available to buy on their own, but generally they sell in blocks of anywhere from $10,000 to $100,000 per block. And so unless you're sitting or sitting on a lot of dough, they're harder to come by for just average schmucks like us. So for me, using something like a bond ETF is, is a way that I would invest in, in bond ETFs. And I have done that. I, I put a small amount, about 5% of my portfolio, in a couple different ETFs for bonds. I'm hesitant to give like investment advice in this regard and picking a specific thing or two to choose. It really comes down to what kind of risk you're willing to tolerate. Again, just like with, with stocks. So if you think about bonds, the easiest way to think about them is you have to think about them in, I guess, levels of risk. With the levels of risk are going to come better returns or better yields. The, the higher the, the dividend or the bond payment, they're going to have to pay you to entice you to buy this bond. So the lowest yields, but the safest are anything to do with a government bond, whether it's a treasury bill, a treasury bond, anything like that. They're anywhere from a week duration to 30 years. They're the safest bonds out there that you can buy. You can buy them at treasury.gov, or you can buy them through your brokerage, however you want to do that. They pay the lowest yields, but they're the safest. The next tier, if you will, is anything to do with a corporate bond. So generally anything that's considered investment grade is something that's going to have a stronger balance sheet and is going to be less risky of going bankrupt. And those are going to pay better yields than the treasury bonds or bills will because you're getting a little more risk. Now, you could argue that Microsoft is probably has less risk of going bankrupt than the United States government does, but that's, that's, an, that's another conversation. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea is, is that the corporate bonds, whether it's buying Fiserv or Visa or Johnson and Johnson or PayPal, you're going to, or Tesla, uh, you're going to get a higher yield to buy those than you would to buy a corporate, uh, to buy a treasury bond. So those kind of have, I guess, a middle of the road, if you will, yields that come with them. And you can buy 
bond ETFs that focus solely on investment grade bonds. And Vanguard is a great place to look for these, by the way. So you have that. So then the next tier, which are going to pay the highest yields, but they're also going to be the riskiest. These are what are lovingly called junk bonds. And these are not investment grade bonds. These are bonds that the bond rating agencies have determined are a higher risk of bankruptcy. And they have different levels of, of risk of bankruptcy. But in, generally, anything that's going to fall into the junk bond range, or they call it, they also call them high yield, uh, because that's, I guess, a less derogatory term but really what those indicate is their the risk of default on this loan that you give them is higher than it would be for a corporate bond correspondingly they pay a higher yield so you earn more money for investing in these but you're paying for that extra risk and again you can buy ETFs bond ETFs that focus on these high yield slash junk bond uh focus, you know, to give you those investments. So what I have done, again, not investment advice, what I've done of the 5% that I bought, I put 3% in a, in a corporate bond ETF and I put 2% in a, in a high yield bond ETF, just so I could kind of juice my bond returns a little bit. But it's 5% of my portfolio. It's not a lot, but I just did it so that I could experience it partly and partly so I could have a little bit extra security. So that's, I guess, kind of the, the whole idea about them. As far as when to buy them, that again really comes down to what's going to work best for your portfolio. I don't get too interested or too excited about timing of when to do this and when to do that. It's really more about time in the market about when as opposed to when you invest. Don't get too wrapped up in what the interest rates are now versus what they're going to be in two years, because in two years, your financial situation could could change. And so it's better if you have the money and you want to do it, put the money in now and don't worry about it. And I guess that's that's kind of my thought on the whole idea. Cool. Well, appreciate that. And um, thanks, everybody, for writing in today. Uh, hopefully we got some good perspective on risk, timeline, bonds, dividends. Did we cover everything today? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Very, very broad ranged episode today. All right. So I guess with that, we're going to go ahead and take it out. You guys uh, invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply <laughs> 